from KUT and KUTX Studios. KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. I would love to see some real healing in the mind of Texas. The mind of Texas is affecting me very deeply. The mind of Texas is critical to what the future of Texas is about. Hi, I'm Ike Evans, host of the Mind of Texas podcast from KUT News 90.5. Texas is a big and diverse state, and so are the minds of the people in it. Each episode, we bring you a discussion on what's happening in Texas and its effect on our mental health. There are so many good organizations and good people that are a part of this work, and when we work to align our services and align our programs, we do better by and for our community. So, Kathy Revtak, there's some terms, you know, that are bandied about in your field that I was wondering if you might go to the trouble of defining for us. Or Ambiguous grief, secondary loss, and then bereavement. Yeah. Ambiguous loss really have to do with those instances or circumstances in which an individual is not aware of or cannot gain access to the facts or some of the key details related to the death of the loved one. So just broad examples might be if someone goes missing and or at a much later time um, is discovered dead, there could be a great deal of ambiguity around the circumstances, the who, how, what, when. So ambiguous grief can present in a lot of ways, ways that are dramatic like that, um, or uh, ways that are much more concrete, such as a parent who, by all external uh, sort of measures, looks entirely healthy, and then one day collapses and dies. And the child, adolescent family awaits months for an autopsy, and even following or subsequent to that is not able to get all of the facts or information surrounding the death or loss. So ambiguity can be about the facts or aspects related to the death or loss. Sometimes there are pieces of the death that are ambiguous. For example, the relationship of the child or adolescent to the person who dies. Maybe an adolescent, for example, has been estranged from their father and the father dies. There can be ambiguity around the child's understanding of how that father felt about them or saw the relationship, etc. That sort of ambiguity can create complications and or extend the bereavement process. Bereavement is really sort of the entirety of the experience of losing someone to death who's important to us. Grief is often understood as the set of emotions or the range of emotions and the sort of emotional process that we go through as we adjust to that loss. So bereavement has not only an emotional component to it, but also has other components, social components, how we relate to our surviving family members and others, sometimes physical components, and sometimes even very spiritual or existential components. So bereavement is kind of broadly understood as the entirety of that experience of losing someone we love through death. Secondary loss are those losses that are precipitated because someone died. So um, perhaps a child experiences the death of her father. And because of that death, the family can no longer afford to live in their home and they need to relocate to an apartment and the apartment that they find is in a different school district and the child has to switch schools. And that means because the school is located several miles from the old neighborhood she lived in, she loses her not only school friends, 
but access to the park and community center in the neighborhood that she grew up in. So all of those losses around the move of the physical residents, the loss of contact with school friends, the disconnection from a whole community, all of those are what we would consider to be secondary losses. They came about and are, were intimately connected to the death of the parent. Because we will be discussing suicide, school violence, and loss of loved ones, listener discretion is advised. So today on Mind of Texas, we are joined remotely from El Paso by Laura Olage, just recently retired from her many years as director of the Children's Grief Center of El Paso. She's here with us today for a conversation about grief. What makes children's grief and ambiguous grief so unique? Disclosure note, Children's Grief Center of El Paso is a recent recipient of grants from the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health. Laura, how's it going? I'm doing well. How would you describe the Children's Grief Center's philosophy or approach to treatment? And how do children grieve differently? Our philosophy is that grief is a normal experience. And everyone grieves differently, however normal that is. And sometimes when it doesn't look normal, you realize maybe that's normal for them. So our way at the Children's Grief Center of helping children through that process is through peer support. By that, I mean in support groups where kids are really assisting each other with the guidance of trained adults and professionals through the grieving process. But what helps them is knowing that other kids are in the same boat that they are. I'm not in this alone. I can get through this and I can talk about this and it's okay. So a support model really is a very strong model other than I have nothing against a therapeutic environment, clinical therapeutic environment. But we found that if it's in a non-threatening environment where the child can be with other kids and maybe be drawing or playing with Play-Doh or whatever the activity may be, then they are going to be more comfortable in sharing. So it's about not putting labels on kids as in a therapeutic session. So we don't have to label them as clinically depressed or with an anxiety disorder. We are there to support them however we can through this difficult process. We saw during COVID that there were all kinds of ways that the pandemic complicated the normal grieving process, right? Yes, definitely. So I was wanting to know if you could tell us a little bit more about how this so-called ambiguous grief shows up in the lives of children. There is a lot of interchange of words that I will just say at the outset that I will use, but ambiguous grief, definitely. I'd like to speak a little in talking about how ambiguous grief affected us all during the pandemic. Sure. And and that was that, you know, we had the loss of our normal environment and even getting together in our professional lives and private lives, of seeing family and friends, of going to the office. And we all began to feel loss and grief because we missed that. And that is really part of what ambiguous grief is, is missing someone and knowing that they are still here, but you can't see them or you can see them, but they are not here emotionally. So with COVID, we all began to feel sad and stressed out. I know I can only speak for myself, but I know I felt stressed out that, gosh, what was tomorrow going to look like? And the day after, and were we going to all be okay? And what was going to happen to all these kids who were experiencing so many losses in their lives? So ambiguous grief definitely affected us all as a human race in terms of those feelings of sadness and mourning what our normal lives were like. But when it came to COVID, what we saw for kids 
was that their grief even became more complicated because they weren't able to say goodbye or, you know, dad got sick from one day to the next and mom said, I'm going to go take him to the ER or I'm going to take him to the hospital. And then dad never came back or mom never came back. And there was no opportunity to say goodbye. And I think that's part of ambiguous grief as well. You didn't get to say all the things that needed to be said. So we have kids that experienced multiple losses, many kids that experienced multiple losses. An example is a 14-year-old whose dad died from COVID, and he went to the hospital. But his mother, the grandmother, had died a week before that. So she didn't know his mom had died, that grandmother had died, and then here was dad that died. So those compounded losses that made this grief experience so difficult. And also, I think when COVID first started, nobody wanted to say they had COVID, you know, uh, maybe to use the word shame, and maybe not quite, but people didn't want others to know that their loved one was ill. So when we began saying people that were dying from COVID, that could be me often is what the thought was. So we realized that for kids, their grief became much more complicated from these deaths. And then compound that with the idea that kids were stuck at home. There was no family coming over. Many times, no one could go to the funeral. So who did they share that grief with? Uh, there was no family or friends or anyone to talk about it with. And then they were expected to go to school, you know, on their computer. And there was just the absence of that social system. So their grief became much more difficult. And we saw that lingering for many months because of that loss. And kids grieve developmentally, don't they? And so it doesn't hit them all at once. There are realizations that they only arrive at in time. Right. Exactly. They do grieve developmentally. Let's say someone dies and they are five years old, but at that age, they don't even realize that death is permanent. So when they get to be a little older, seven or eight, they begin to realize, my dad isn't coming back. And then as they get to be older, 11 or 12, they re-experience that grief again. For example, I'm playing soccer, and my, my dad or my mom, they weren't here to see me make that goal. Or I'm on a baseball team, and they didn't get to see me experience that. Uh, they get to be a teenager. Let's say the prom is coming up. Where was my mom? She didn't even help me pick up my beautiful gown. So that is the big way that children and adults grieve differently, is developmentally. And they also re-experience this grief throughout their life as they go through these developmental phases. What are consistently some of the biggest challenges in doing this kind of work and in doing it well? Well, that is a really tough question. Some of the challenges in doing this work, I think as a professional, one of the biggest challenges you encounter is that you are not going to be able to help everyone the way you think you would like to. You can't make someone want to do the work. Say, for example, when a parent brings the child in and says, well, they need help, but parent never recognizes I need help too. So often, when it starts to get a little uncomfortable, the parent will not return. And the parent may say, oh, they didn't want to come back. But the reality was, this was just darn, too darn difficult for a parent to face. Or maybe they weren't ready. And professionally, there was nothing I could do about that. I was there to help when they were ready to do the work. But you can't make human beings do what they are not ready or don't want to do. For example, in mental health, we see many individuals across the country in situations where we say, why didn't someone do something? They had a 
a mental health disorder. But if that person rejected the help, how can you make them accept it? So it's the same with grieving kids and families. You were there to provide what they might need, but they have to accept it. And do you have any personal experience with this issue? I know it's not an easy one. Or just a personal story that kind of helps to give context to your work? Well, I would speak to the loss of my dad in terms of talking even about ambiguous grief. It's interchangeable, I believe, also with what we call anticipatory grief. When we know someone is going to die, we are all going to die, but some of us know sooner than others. My dad personally uh, suffered from uh, complications from diabetes. And as I began to see him deteriorate, he just became less, not just social, but engaged, less engaged in life and difficult reaching that person. So you realize that they may be there physically, but emotionally they are not. So you began this process of anticipating that loss. Now, I often hear people say when they die, oh, I already grieved them. I mourned them before their death. But as human beings, even once they die, we mourn them again. So it is a difficult process to watch someone who is ill. Say, for example, even Alzheimer's. My father-in-law had Alzheimer's, and you just got to that period where you realized and you looked in his eye and you recognized he's not there anymore. You couldn't carry a conversation. You couldn't hear those stories that he would share with you about his life. So you did have that ambiguous grief while you were anticipating that loss. So I think it affects most of us in our lives. Although I have heard an occasional person say, an adult, I have never experienced the death of a loved one ever in my life. And I almost think to myself, oh my God, how is that even possible? But there are those individuals who have not had any losses. But it does affect us all. If you don't mind me asking about how old were you when you lost your father? I was an adult. I was an adult already. So when the kids uh, at the center would ask me, well, who's died in your family? And I would say, well, my dad died, but I was already a grown-up. It was different for me than for you. For them, the death of a parent is life-shattering. We go back to the term ambiguous grief. Many of our kids that have had a parent die, say a mom dies, and the parents often were divorced. So that ambiguous grief comes across when they know that dad is out there, and yet they never stepped up to say, hey, son, you're going to go live with me, or there was someone in your life who cares about you. So that one parent dies, and the child feels like they are on an island all by themselves because that person hasn't stepped forward. So it complicates the loss. It makes it more difficult. So when we talk about a complicated grief, what we mean by that is that the symptoms are more intense, longer in duration. We see more mental health issues resulting from it, such as depression, anxiety, a number of disorders for kids. But we also see this, for example, in types of deaths such as suicide, homicide. When a suicide occurs for a child, the child always feels like they did something to make that happen. So their grief is automatically more complicated. Sometimes you'll hear a child say, well, I know it wasn't my fault. I know that in their head, ultimately, they begin to wonder, what did I do that caused my parent to leave, to leave me alone? Because they feel that sense of abandonment. So it does definitely make their life more complicated. 
we didn't really pay a lot of attention to what was going on at school. But in the last, oh, I'm guessing 10, 15 years, we've begun to pay attention to uh, how grief affects kids at school. And now I know in El Paso, as in many communities, we have formed partnerships with area school districts so that we can take our services into the schools because what we uh, share with administrators is that we recognize that grieving kids have more difficulty focusing in schools. They have more behavioral issues, much higher absenteeism, especially for teenagers, all kinds of difficulty focusing, concentrating, getting along with other kids. So if we can go into the school, say with a program like the Children's Grief Center and take our program into the schools, then perhaps we can help those kids better come to terms with. We can't change that, but maybe we can help them come to terms with the loss and accept it and move forward in a healthy manner so that they can thrive and improve their academic performance, for lack of a better word. So we do see that it does affect kids in our schools. Whether you're in El Paso, Texas, or Austin, or Dallas, or wherever you may be, mental health issues related to virtually every facet of mental well-being we definitely need to keep working at it. Again, going back to what we see on the news, if we continue, we have to continue to strive to target and offer services to people who maybe not have the mental health they could have, but continue to work at it so that we can offer those services. After that conversation, I felt I just had to get a hold of the center's current director, Kathy Revtak, just to get a sense of how she is navigating this moment of transition for the Children's Grief Center, as well as her hopes for the future. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ike. It's great to be with you. Our listeners would love to know more about you and how you came to your current role with Children's Grief Center. Well, I am a proud El Paso resident. I love my community and have been here for 25 years. I'm a social worker by training and by vocation. I like to think of myself as someone who walks with people, walks with them on their life's journey. I have spent the better part of my career walking with families and children in particular, those who have been affected by trauma and also grief and loss. And I have also been privileged to uh, work in partnership with some other area nonprofits as members of a board of directors, teach for a period of time at the University of Texas at El Paso, and had a short stint running my own private practice as a licensed psychotherapist. For the last uh, approximately five years, I've been working in the space of community mental health, specifically with children and adolescents. And when I learned of Laura's pending retirement, I just knew that being at the Children's Grief Center of El Paso was not only the next right step for me, but where I was called to and, and meant to be. So I was very fortunate to be selected for the executive director role and Again, privileged to have a few months of overlap for onboarding and training and mentoring from Laura prior to her retirement. What excites you about taking over from the founder? And what makes you anxious about it? I think what is so exciting to me is we fulfill a unique niche. We are meeting such an important and timely need in our community. And to some extent, there's great opportunity for the impact of our work to grow and to be known. And that really excites me. 
I love working in community. I love supporting the building and growth of organizations. I love supporting and building collaborations among partners, partner agencies, partner organizations, and schools, all for the betterment of the health of our community. And so I feel really excited about both our expertise to, again, address a timely niche and just the possibility to do that in community and responding to a timely need in our community. What makes me anxious really is the opposite side of that proverbial coin, which is there is so much need. And again, here in our region, in our community, children, adolescents, and their families have been disproportionately affected in my community around grief and loss, particularly in terms of mental health. And so while I know that the Children's Grief Center uh, will never be able to meet all of that need, I know that we are a vital and important partner in that effort. And so I think navigating our place in that community-wide effort is both a challenge and an exciting opportunity before us. And perhaps you could give us a sense of the need that exists in your community when it comes to bereavement. And like you said, um, you can't serve everyone, but maybe you have some way of representing the number of those who you aim to reach. First of all, you know, I'm pretty excited that our field of childhood bereavement is really starting to track data. And I won't dwell too long on the data, but I think it's important to help all of us sort of wrap our heads around the scope of the need. You know, recent data nationally suggests that one in 12 children are bereaved. That is one in 12 children in the United States have lost a parent before the age of 18. And when you start to look at statewide data, you see a lot of variation. And when you start to look at different aspects of demographics, including race, there's a lot of variation. And then you start to look at what those rates look like in communities where there are mental health and health disparities. And you put all of that together and there is a tremendous and disproportional amount of need in El Paso. And then you look where we're, we're situated, right? And what we've been through the last few years as a community, of course, we're, we're no exception in having, you know, survived in some ways, uh, navigated the COVID pandemic. Many, and I would probably estimate, I don't have hard numbers, but between 30 and 40% of the children that we serve right now lost a parent due to COVID. So disproportionate numbers of families who lost a parent during the COVID pandemic. You and many of your listeners are probably familiar with the August 3rd, 2019 racially motivated mass shooting at the Walmart here in El Paso community. Many or some of those families that were directly or indirectly affected, we served and continue to serve at our here at our center. There's a few other things that make the need, I think, unique here in El Paso. Um, you know, we're home to Fort Bliss, one of, if not the largest, I think, army installation in the United States. Again, I would say while the number varies from time to time, anywhere between 10 and 30 percent of the children and teens we serve have lost a parent who is military affiliated. And lastly, I would just comment on our being a border community. You know, we, we are in relationship not only with our sister community of Las Cruces, but our sister community of Ciudad Juarez and a myriad of other smaller communities on the other side of the border. So again, we serve and continue and will continue to serve families who have experienced death and other forms of secondary loss, either related to their experience of migration, community violence, or other forms of violence. So taken together, we serve a really, really um, diverse set of children and adolescents. And the fact that we're the only Children's Bereavement Center here in West Texas, we are really the only group that really has expertise in what childhood um, and adolescent grief looks like and are able to take all of those factors into consideration, I think really not only inspires us, but requires us to try and meet the portion of the need that we can. Like Laura said, children grieve differently from adults. So what can someone learn about mental health in general or just about, you know, the therapeutic journey in general 
from working with this particular group? Sometimes what is misunderstood or not fully understood is that grief is not only universal. We will all not only die, but experience the death of loved ones in our lives, but also a really normal process. So I want to just start by saying that not all bereaved children experience mental health challenges. In fact, we believe and know that what we do, creating group spaces where children and adolescents and their parents, where they they connect with others, where they share, where they learn skills, we believe that all of that helps to mitigate or sort of work against the likelihood of certain mental health challenges presenting, both in the short term and the long term. That said, I will point out, and particularly, again, coming from and locating ourselves in this space of community mental health, we know that many of the children that we serve have previously experienced adverse childhood events, right? Completely separate from and prior to the death of a parent or a sibling. And so sometimes the death of their loved one can either exacerbate or trigger some element of their mental health challenge. We also know that some of the deaths that our children and adolescents experience have aspects and or are traumatic for them. And so while grief and trauma are not the same thing, sometimes I I explain to people, it's almost like a Venn diagram, right? There can be an overlapping and an intersection. And it's just so important to to know what that looks like uniquely for each child and for each adolescent. So I think the take-home message or, or what I often explain to people is that There's really no one size fits all. And what's so important in the work that we do is that we spend time to get to know our children and teens and adolescents, understand the experiences that came before and led up to the death, understand the relationship they have with the person who died and the circumstances around that death, and then really work with them to figure out what are the supports they need right? Including the ones that we provide, and then sometimes those that others in the community provide. So we really come with the work, the work of accompaniment, I think from a very holistic standpoint. You mentioned at the start your love for your community of El Paso. Your work takes place in a very unique community that has its own particular cultural and geographic factors, you know, being on the border and in a very unique state of Texas. And so, like, how do either of those factors, either being, you know, located in El Paso or doing the work that you do in a state like Texas, how do either of those factors affect your work versus being located anywhere else? I know that being located in a border community in a tri-state area presents some unique challenges and opportunities for us. You know, it provides an opportunity for us, one, to make sure that we provide services that are culturally grounded, that are inclusive, two, that we work to address barriers to access to care, whether that's around transportation or child care, um, trying to figure out how it is that we leverage technology um, to find services that fit the best for different segments of the population that we serve. It also means that we're working in a community where there is a shortage of healthcare providers and behavioral healthcare providers. One of the things that I love about the work here being done at the Grief Center is that our foundation is that of a peer group model, which means a couple of things. One, it means that we rely on engaging and bringing in community volunteers who become trained to facilitate or co-facilitate, as it were, groups at our center with the children. So we really rely on this being a community-based effort. Our volunteers are not necessarily required to be mental health professionals or have mental health training, but we provide on-site and ongoing training to them to help them to be that caring and consistent and grief-informed facilitator of groups. That's foundational to what we do. It also means that we rely on partnerships. We have a school-based grief support project. And part of what we hope to do and not only have been doing, but hope to continue to do is build capacity 
in our local school districts so that guidance counselors feel uh, more grief informed, feel more equipped to respond to students on their campuses who have experienced the death of a parent or a sibling. You know, a particular hope that we also have is sort of creating crisis response teams, sort of helping to build that capacity in area districts. Again, so each district felt that they have sort of enough internal capacity to help better respond in a grief-informed way in times of crisis. So I think both sort of need to rely on and develop resources in our community is a really unique part of who we are and, and what we do. And we can kind of look at some of the things that there's more space to grow or to develop in our area and and really sort of put our mind to to creative or innovative solutions on addressing those. So you can't get away from the fact that school shootings have just been a mainstay in the things that we have to worry about and pay attention to living here in Texas. And we don't need to go all that deeply into the politics of school violence prevention because it's a very fraught topic, obviously. But, I mean, how does it make you feel, to whatever extent you do try to monitor the political discourse about school shootings, just coming from what you know as someone who works in mental health and as someone who cares so deeply about the mental health of kids, what are your kind of gut reactions or responses? Well, there's a lot to be said about that topic. You know, I was driving to work this morning, actually listening to national public radio around a new set of, of data around not only the prevalence of mass shootings, the subset of school shootings, and the connection to mental health. Like, I mean, at this point, I think that the data, what we know about the impact of gun violence, you know, particularly among children and adolescents, really um, all human beings, is pretty unequivocal. You know, the prevalence of, of school shootings, what that means, uh, not only on a day-to-day basis uh, for our children in terms of their uh, level of hypervigilance and lack of security, et cetera, et cetera, but the frequency which with these school shootings are happening and not only causing death, but precipitating countless amount of secondary loss it's just deeply, deeply impactful for our children and for our families. And yeah, the bigger context is we also know, and I don't have those numbers with already, we know that the incidence and prevalence of gun-related violence is also skyrocketing in our country, in our state, in our community. And so, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, working with children and adolescents who are bereaved due to death by suicide, gun-related suicide, working day-to-day with children who have witnessed uh, community violence in the form of a gun shooting in their community, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard not to feel very invested in this ongoing debate as an advocate. You know, time and time again, I will come down in favor and on the side of being a proponent, not only for child and adolescent mental health, but physical safety. And do you have any personal experience with any of the issues that we've been talking about, whether that is bereavement or childhood trauma, or maybe just a personal story to give context to your work? You know, like most Americans, I think the percentage is something like 60% of Americans, we have survived adverse childhood, one or more adverse childhood event or events. I am no exception to that. I have experienced my fair share of adverse childhood events growing up. And, you know, one of the things that really sort of changed my world were the loving and caring and consistent adults that I connected with, particularly my later childhood and my adolescence. Think about my swimming coach and my newspaper yearbook advisor and a geology teacher that took us on a trip out of state. And I look back on those relationships now knowing what I know through the eyes of the professional and realize that they really not only gifted me with their love and their care, they really helped me to build resilience. Like we know that those are the building blocks of resilience, feeling safe, feeling connected, and learning tools and skills to kind of cope and regulate. And, and those adults gifted me with those things. 
And I also look back and I know that, you know, it's because of those gifts and those relationships that I received that that really propelled me not only toward college and college education and ultimately to choose a professional path as a social worker, but it also propelled me to service, to give back. I did not experience the death of a parent or a caregiver, but I will share that early on in my adult life and in my marriage, you know, my husband and I fostered youth for a period of time. I fostered four youth in total at different times and for different lengths of time. And of those youth, two had experienced the death of their parents. One death by suicide, a violent suicide, and the other death by chronic complications related to untreated chronic illness. And at the time, you know, many, many years ago, the best that I knew how to do was to do what those adults in my life had done for me, which was to be caring and loving, be consistent, show up every day with integrity, be curious, and really work to figure out what tools or supports those youth needed. And I think about, I have thought about um, how those youth changed my life. And as I began to continue to grow professionally, you know, continually influenced me to work with other youth who had experienced trauma and who had experienced the death of a parent or a sibling. Even as I talk to you now, you know, I think about the many, many youth since. I have walked with. I think I started using the word accompaniment, you know, over the last like, 25 years. I think this will be my 25th year as a social worker. I have learned from them and the opportunity to walk with them and be a place of safety and consistency and love for them. And again, it just feels like coming full circle now, being here um, at the Children's Grief Center. Not only with the opportunity, I, the personal opportunity to continue to walk with youth uh, in my current role, but also to, to build capacity and to train and support other adults as we kind of build this village. So the work is deeply personal for me. It's that deeply personal aspect of it, right, that, that fuels the passion. Um, you know, I know, I'm, I know that I am here to do this work uh, for the long haul because it is what I believe and what I love and who I am. Okay. So, Kathy, how do you approach community mental health, you know, versus a private client? For me, community mental health is really deeply rooted in a couple pillars. One of them is access. Then this is a personal belief, um, but I do believe that we all have a right to access health care and behavioral or mental health care. And so when I commit myself to working in community health, I commit myself to working to increase access to those services. So increasing access sometimes is about reducing barriers, either structural barriers or, or very sort of practical, tangible barriers. And so I'm about that work of increasing access. The other thing that's just an inherent part of that approach is equity. Equity and belonging are also core pillars of a community mental health approach. It means that our services, that our programs, that just sort of our model of care really addresses gaps in equity so that groups of people or community or populations that have sort of been pushed to the margins or sort of pushed in a way that they're not equitably able to access services, we create pathways for equity to kind of come front and center. So I think that those are core pillars. And the last thing that I would say is that I think collaboration is a really key component of a strong community mental health system, particularly in communities like ours in El Paso and there are so many um, good organizations and good people that are a part of this work. And when we work to align our services and align our programs, we do better by and for our community. What has experience taught you are some best practices when you know dealing with children's grief in particular? You know, in the area of childhood grief, it's it's really important that we we use accurate words that we teach and model for children saying, my father died. 
as opposed to saying my father passed away or my father transitioned or my father went away because the accuracy and simplicity of the words died and death we know help to support children and adolescents in their grieving process. It helps sort of move them along in that process of acceptance, which again, comes in different times and different ways and can be defined differently. But words do matter. And that's sort of part of what we teach and what we offer. We also say words like died by suicide rather than committed suicide, recognizing that suicide is a form of death. It is not as sort of implied a crime. So language and frankness with care and love is really important. It's an important part of the work that we do here. Are there any resources that you would point people towards or also how they can find out more about the work of the center and how they can support it? So again, we belong to a national alliance, the National Alliance for Children's Grief. NACG is a tremendous national resource that has a well-developed website that can link listeners to many of the centers, uh, both nationally, but across the state of Texas. And they also have a tremendous amount of online resources and publications. I'd also you know, recommend that those listening um, who are either parents, caregivers, or work with children check out the National Child Traumatic Stress Network website. They have an immense online library, not only with briefs, but handouts in English and Spanish and a very well-developed resource page. And of course, to learn more um, about our center, listeners can go to our website at cgclpaso.org or follow us on social media. Again, uh, we depend. We depend on partnerships, on stakeholders, and we depend on volunteers. So if any listener feels compelled to support as a volunteer and give back, we always look to find a place to make that match in changing the lives of children in our community. This is your platform and assume the widest possible listenership. What things, even provocative things, would you like to say about doing mental health in Texas and trying to do it well in Texas? What I would like to say particularly about children's grief um, is this. The work that the Children's Grief Center is doing is part of a national movement to bring increased awareness around the prevalence of grief and trauma in the lives of children in our country today. Children's Grief Center is one of approximately 250 such centers nationally, and yet our sort of shared vision as a movement is that no child should grieve alone. And one of the many reasons that that is really at the heart of our vision, even though our statements may look uh, a little bit different, is because too often children and teens and families suffer in silence. There is still so much stigma around death and around seeking support and connection following the death of a loved one. So what I want listeners to know, what our community to know is that there are too many children and adolescents grieving and suffering in silence. And we know that left in isolation, left without supports, left without care, the likelihood that some of those children may develop mental health challenges raising from anxiety to depression to PTSD and beyond, that likelihood increases. And so while I think that sometimes the public still remains, in my personal opinion, a little too reticent to invest in services that are deemed preventable, <laughs> those that are, are less than crisis-oriented, you know, there's 30 years of epidemiological data and years and years <laughs> of experience from people who are part of this movement. And we know that early intervention, that early support, that um, holistic support really does change lives and really does mitigate, you know, the likelihood of onset of these more serious conditions. And that coming at this from a deterministic standpoint, really one um, that's grief-informed, trauma-informed, and based in data. And, you know, when I think about 
our Texas listeners, right, to uh, you know sort of put a, a fine point on my commentary. I've I've heard. I'm gonna have a fact check this: that one in ten children being born today is being born in the state of Texas. Ten percent of our future population is being born in the state of Texas. And if that doesn't underscore the need for our state to invest in our children and invest in our future, then I don't know what does. So this was a lot to process. And I think one takeaway is that children really do need the best of us. You know, those of us who have the ability, the means, the power, and the resources to help. I couldn't help but ask about the political environment here in Texas just because that juxtaposition is irresistible to me. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, I think it is safe to say that our politics often does not represent the best of us. Just that stark contrast between what it is that our children most need and the very, you know, paltry outcomes of our politics, even when the needs of children is very directly addressed. It's bewildering, and I don't think that too much can be said about it. But there are those who get it. For example, in the community of El Paso, who do represent the best of us and who are there kind of on the front lines doing their best, their utmost to make a difference in children's lives. And so you can also take this episode as a salute to them because we can always strive to be better. Thanks for listening to Mind of Texas. You can find our full list of episodes at KUT.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on your preferred podcast player. It really does help. Mind of Texas is a collaboration between KUT 90.5 and the Hawk Foundation for Mental Health. Original soundtrack by Jerron Marshall. This episode was edited and executive produced by Jack Anderson for KUT Austin. I'm Mike Evans, Communications Manager for the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health and host of the Mind of Texas podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hope to have you back soon. See you next time. Support comes from Austin Water, helping residents reduce water use while protecting Austin's precious resource during the drought conditions with MyATX Water, providing near real-time water use data, tips, and leak alerts. More at austinwater.org.